Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. If you are new to the podcast or haven't had an opportunity yet to rate and review it, if you could do that, I would be greatly appreciative for that. And I am also greatly appreciative to welcome back Dr. Sunitha Puri to the podcast. The reason I'm welcoming her back is because I taped her once before and screwed up the recording. So um, she's back today. Dr. Sunitha Puri is the medical director of the Palliative Medicine Service at Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center of the University of Southern California, where she also serves as the chair of the Ethics Committee. Sunitha is the author of That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, a critically acclaimed literary memoir examining her journey to the practice of palliative care medicine and her quest to help patients and families redefine what it means to live and die well in the face of serious illness. Sunitha received her writing residencies at the McDowell Colony U Cross Foundation and Mesa Refuge and was a finalist for the Penn Center's Emerging Voices Writing Fellowship. The recipient of a Rhodes Scholarship, her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, Slate, and the Journal of the American Medical Association. In 2018, she was awarded the Etzheim Tree of Life Award from the USC School of Medicine, awarded annually to a member of the faculty who, in the eyes of the campus community, models and provides humanistic and compassionate care. Wow, quite a resume. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. Thank you for for being so willing to do this again. So first, I want to check in and and see how you are and thank you because you're a frontline worker right now. And so while this interview isn't about COVID, it would sort of feel wrong not to address everything that's going on at this point. 
So all things considered, I'm doing pretty well. I think that if you ask different doctors or nurses in the hospital, you'd probably get a variety of responses. But I feel grateful that so far I've been able to do pretty good self-care and keep my anxiety at a minimum. So I think I'm coasting along. It's not without my moments of deep grief or sadness or disempowerment, but I'm trying really hard to keep those in check so I can be a rock for my patients and colleagues. So so let's start with a little bit about what you do. And can you explain what exactly is palliative care and how it differs from hospice? Certainly. So that's a question I get a lot. And if it's not asked outright, it sometimes is a problem because people will conflate the two. So palliative care is a type of specialized medical care that involves attending to all domains of suffering that a patient and family experience when they're dealing with a serious illness. So we care for physical symptoms such as cancer, pain, or shortness of breath. We attend to emotional challenges that come with being newly sick or chronically sick. And we help with the spiritual aspects of pain as well. So people often find themselves wondering, what is the meaning of my existence now that I can no longer go to work? Or why would God do this to me? And we address these domains of suffering by having a team with many specialties. So there's a physician, a nurse practitioner, a social worker, and a chaplain all on the team so that we can effectively tackle each domain of suffering that a patient and family experiences. How this differs from hospice is that on palliative care, you can still continue to get medical treatments for whatever your underlying condition is. So let's say you have advanced pancreatic cancer. You can still get chemotherapy or other therapies used to treat it right alongside having the support of a palliative care team to really focus on your quality of life and well-being as your cancer is being treated. On hospice, we have that same interdisciplinary team attending to all the different domains of suffering, but at that point, we are not generally doing things like chemotherapy or dialysis or advanced treatments for heart failure. So that's one of the biggest distinctions between hospice and palliative care. The other one I would say is that to be eligible for hospice, two physicians have to think that you will die within the next six months. Whereas on palliative care, you can receive our team's support at any age and at any stage of your illness, even if we expect you to survive your illness. So, and I think a lot of people think once you move to sort of a palliative care model or that you can't receive the same treatment that you would get, but you're saying you can. Certainly. You can. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that misconception of either I can get palliative care or I can get full treatment, that binary actually is what it results in is very delayed referrals to palliative care. And a lot of doctors believe this too, that calling palliative care means giving up or calling palliative care means that you've failed a patient because your treatments didn't work. Actually calling palliative care early on is gives your patients the best chance of doing well and 
possibly even living longer. Well, and it sounds like too, just maintaining a good quality of, of life at end of life. Exactly. And throughout the journey with an illness. So I've had patients who have severe side effects from chemotherapy, and I can treat their various types of pain, help them be more functional, and therefore help them actually tolerate more chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting unfolding when we're involved early. If we're involved in the 11th hour, then we don't have a relationship with patients and families And it reinforces the idea that we're only supposed to be called at the end when all treatments have been exhausted. The ideal time to be in palliative care is when you get a serious diagnosis. Well, and a perfect segue, because I want to talk about the book, which was so beautifully written and such a... a, just a weaving together of your life and your experience and how that shaped the choice you made to go into the med- the type of medicine, well, to go into medicine, because your mother's a physician, but also to go into the medicine that you chose. So there were so many profound points you make about shifting how we view death, disease, and our healthcare system. And so much of it was shaped by, by your upbringing. So can you speak a little bit to that on how the different perspectives on life and death sort of informed your decision to go into this, this field of medicine? Certainly. So I grew up with a mother who is an anesthesiologist who would pray with her patients before taking them to the operating room. So I really grew up seeing that medical science and spirituality can really sit side by side. And my parents both really taught me from Hindu philosophy, which, um, from which Buddhist philosophy is derived. They taught me that all things are impermanent, including our lives. And so I was hearing this from a very early age and came to some extent to inhabit that belief system. But when I went to medical school, there was absolutely no discussion of life's impermanence or of the suffering that we all carry and of the suffering that highly technical medical science can inflict on patients, sometimes for a great benefit, but sometimes it actually ends up being harmful and dragging out a death. So I really, really struggled with the decision of what to specialize in. I very much wanted to be like my mom and to practice ICU medicine. But when I did my rotation, I found myself really struggling with the default mode of caring for critically ill patients, which was just to continue doing procedures and tests because we could, but not necessarily because we should. So we would, for example, treat a patient with end-stage cancer who came into the ICU with a terrible pneumonia. We would treat them the same way that we would treat somebody who is in a car accident, lost a lot of blood, and is recovering from it. Those two patients have very different chances at survival, and they have very different qualities of life at that time and if they are ever to leave the ICU. So That was a real struggle for me. And I decided that palliative care was really the best home for me because it involved really helping people, doctors and patients alike, to make considered thoughtful choices about what they want for their lives, especially when time is short. And it also involves moving towards places of great difficulty, 
helping families and patients contend with a terrible diagnosis, uh, helping them to define what they would want for themselves when time is really short. Talking about death, but also very much framing it as being a part of life and part of living a good life for many people means dying a good death. And so defining what these things mean and putting them into practice somehow called to me in the end more than practicing ICU medicine. And it sounds like one of the things that was was so evidenced in this book in your, and in your work is the importance of, of dignity in whatever capacity. And I think that when we're dealing with death or dying, even people who aren't who aren't doctors, it just seems to be about prolonging life in any capacity. So how do you think about dignity in your work and and where's the balance of those two? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So I think, you know, when we think about the concept of human dignity, which is really a concept that honors a person's, the states that they're worthy of a specific sort of respect and honor, I think that in medicine, sometimes we can put people through great indignities, having tubes to collect their urine, being on heavily sedated med- sedating medications to tolerate a ventilator, them being so sick from their disease and sometimes from the recovery from treatment that they need somebody to attend to their personal care and to help them walk around. And these can be big blows to someone's pride. And I think the compromise of dignity for many people is worth having if the compromise of dignity is temporary. But in many situations that I've witnessed, the compromise of dignity is not temporary. It is kind of recurring and folds on itself as a disease course unfolds. And as we do more and more and more to a person, but not necessarily do more and more for them. So, you know, it's Mm -hmm. to go back to the example I had earlier, if you have advanced cancer and you're in the ICU, the chances of you being dependent partially or fully for a period of time on others to care for you, to do things that you want to do on your own, it's pretty likely that you are going to incur some compromise of dignity. The question is if you're in that state, being very sick at baseline, and then needing high-level interventions that could weaken you even more, the question is whether going through that will actually help you to live a better life. 
and the sort of life that you want. And that's how I think, I think dignity informs a lot of people's visions for how they want to live their life. And so it's an important concept to think about when you're discussing choices with patients. Well, and I think it makes me think as you're talking about the emotional piece of health or disease that we don't talk about as much. I mean, it's starting to become more prevalent, but I think there's still so much work to be done. And when we're thinking about weighing those options in terms of like how we might be prolonging a physical physical health, but if someone's emotional, if they're so depressed or anxious, is is there a cost in that way as well? Certainly. So we have evidence that patients leaving the ICU, whether for short or long stays, have a pretty high rate of PTSD. And the longer you're in the ICU, when you become what we call chronically critically ill, there's a very high chance for your recovery to be very prolonged and emotionally very challenging because it's being prolonged. So so certainly the emotional well-being of patients, I think, goes hand in hand with their physical well-being. Well, and it seems like your work, and this is where you, you really merge the spiritual and the medical piece of things in the book, is that you are grappling daily with spiritual issues as people near the end of your life. And how how do you think people can incorporate what you see at end of life into their entire life, into their life's entirety? Like you don't have to wait till the end maybe to have certain discussions or contemplate meaning or, you know, whatever else you, you're seeing. I think one of the fundamental parts of a spiritual practice, at least in my view of things and my experience of things, is that death can be a very powerful thing to contemplate. When we think about death and the brevity of our lives, we actually become more alive every day because we start to realize that every day is a gift from God or from whatever being that you choose to look up to or to the universe. Um, and so I think the contemplation of death, as is spelled out in the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the most sacred Hindu texts, contemplating death gives you life. It breathes meaning into your days. And I think that's a fundamental part of any spiritual practice, is recognizing the brevity of all of our lives and the interconnectedness we experience because we're all on this human journey, which is brief. So I think there's many, many religions interpret contemplation of death differently. But I think the earlier we start to engage with this reality, the more comfortable we're going to become finding meaning in our days, finding a deeper love between us and those in our lives, and being potentially less anxious when we get sick and when we're asked to make hard decisions. And I truly believe it doesn't matter which spiritual practice you go by. A spiritual practice can be just sitting and looking at a tree every time the seasons change and letting that tree with the falling of its leaves from the branches, with the dried leaves on the ground, with the new green that comes 
in the springtime, let that be a teacher to you too, that all things change and all things are impermanent. And these are cycles that we go through. So how can we make peace with that for ourselves and to come to see as part of what's natural to see death that way too, just as birth is. And I think spirituality and the language of spirituality can help tremendously with that. So beautifully said. You should be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you how do you see things or do you see things? Because you talk about this a little bit with in, in relation to your mom in the book, as miracles or God's plan or both or neither. But probably more both. I think it really depends on the specific situation that you're you're facing. Um, I want to go to the book specifically to t- to help answer this question. I, when I was a resident, as I write about in the book, was very intimidated when families would say, "We know that our loved one is going to be the exception; a miracle is going to happen." And when I heard that, I had no way of engaging with it. It was kind of Mm -hmm. like hearing the word, I'm a fighter and I want everything done. Fighter, everything, and miracle are three words that I think many physicians fear and don't know how to explore. And what ends up happening and what happened to me in my training was whenever I heard those words in combination or individually, I felt obligated then to keep going, to do everything for a potentially dying person that I would do to somebody who had a reasonable chance of survival. And the lack of the, lack of the ability to really excavate the meaning, why people are using the word miracle, what do they envision when they talk about a miracle, to ask them to help you understand that so you can balance their hope for that miracle with the reality of their loved one's situation. And not being afraid to say that miracles, even in the spiritual sense, are exceptions to the rule. And to help people see that their loved one might be the rule and not the exception, but to offer up that you would continue to do what you can to keep their loved one dignified and comfortable. My mom, you know, in our spiritual community, we definitely witnessed people who had truly miraculous recoveries from very aggressive forms of cancer. I Mm -hmm. still can't explain what happened to those people to have them turn a metastatic end-stage cancer and to have that go away. Mm-hmm. There's no like medical spontaneous ex- remissions. Yes, there's we hear of. no scientific explanation of that. And that's when I started to realize that there were some things medicine can't explain. There are some recoveries I see of patients in our ICUs in particular that I can't explain. And so I think thinking about the term God's plan as a very elastic term. God could plan for you to have a miracle, but it may also be God calling you home if, despite all medical efforts, you still die. Mm -hmm. And so part of, I think, what it means to have a spiritual view of things in medicine is to recognize also that the body that God created for all of us has its limits. And Mm -hmm. so what does it mean in medicine to accept that a machine as miraculous as the body can potentially get better sometimes, 
but that sometimes all we do is get in the way of God calling a person home. And mm-hmm. how you find that balance of are we helping this person to survive well or are we prolonging dying? I think that in and of itself is a spiritual question because it allows for the recognition of a body's limit and for another plan to potentially be unfolding. So two more quick questions because I know... I want to be super respectful of your time today for giving me extra time. Um, I loved your dad in this book, your relationship with him. And I want to talk about a conversation you had with him about acceptance. And he said in the context of him potentially facing his own death, it doesn't mean giving up or giving in, but it means that you see what you can and cannot change and learn to be okay with that. Acceptance is really a spiritual lesson. It is something we need God to help us with. And this was so this was so profound to me and something that I think we're all always working on is acceptance. Can you talk a little about the sentiment that you shared with him or that he shared with you? I think my dad, so my dad is a very deeply spiritual man. Most of the lessons that I learned at a very young age were from him because he was with me when my mom was doing her residency. And I think that acceptance and surrender are some of the hardest spiritual lessons to learn. How do you know when a situation is what it is and you need to accept it versus facing a situation that you want at some level to change? How do you know when to surrender? And I think my dad is absolutely right, especially when it comes to being at the end of life. What would it look like to accept that you are in the process of dying, whether you're in an ICU bed at that time or whether you're out taking a walk with your loved one, even though you have stage four lung cancer. I think the Buddha also talks a tremendous amount about accepting what is because accepting what is may be the antidote to human suffering. Suffering, I think of as banging your head against a wall in a sense, that something is as it is. It is the fixed wall, and you are trying to move a fixed wall, and you can't. Mm -hmm. And that's the image that always comes to mind for me when I've had a struggle accepting things that I cannot change. In a way, it's like the serenity prayer in AA, which I think is profound. And I think it goes, God, help me to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that in such beautiful, concise language summarizes what it means to accept that it is a spiritual practice. And the earlier earlier we learn to make that the way we approach difficult situations, no matter what they are, I think the easier facing truly crazy situations like the end of life, the potentially the easier it becomes. Mm-hmm. And the resistance is is often what makes it so much harder. The resistance within ourselves. Yes, the resistance within ourselves, which I also think is exacerbated by the resistance within the medical community of engaging in the questions around what death looks like. Are we extending a life or are we extending a death? And mm-hmm. I think we as a culture of physicians have some spiritual learning to do because our role is not just about being heroes who save lives. 
our role is to walk patients from life to death by knowing that it is coming for all of us and that we need to have the language to acknowledge it and the language to ask questions of our patients or tell them difficult information in a way that softens the blow and opens the door to acceptance rather than resistance. Well, and I think when you can give someone a beautiful death and give a family a beautiful death, it really, it's so profoundly healing. If you, I mean, I'm sure you've witnessed it. I've witnessed it. And it's a beautiful thing to kind of help someone exit the world in a way that that is filled with love and family and the things that seem to matter most. Certainly. And we don't know what matters most to people until we ask. And mm-hmm. we don't we don't have the ability to ask unless we acknowledge why this question is important, particularly when time is short. So last question, what do you feel like matters most in the end? Are you asking my particular view on this or both like what your view is, but also what you see with people? I think the two are very similar. What I've seen generally is that people want to be with loved ones. They want to be with people who know them towards the end. They want familiar touch. They want familiar music. Ideally, they'd like to be in their own home, although not always. Mm -hmm. They want freedom from pain. They want to be comfortable. Many of them want to stay as well as possible so they can engage in some activities that make their life meaningful. They want to be dignified. And I think, and they don't, I've never really heard people say to me, I wish I'd worked harder. I want to go back to work. I want to do this for that. And it really, it's at the end, I think oftentimes that people come to realize the things they worried about or didn't accept earlier in life don't even matter. And I would say that for myself too, that when my death comes, I, I hope that I can welcome it with open arms. I hope it's not traumatic. I hope I don't get assaulted. I hope it's just as much like going to sleep as possible. And I know that when that time comes, the people who love me will find a way and find the courage to respect that, no matter when that's going to be. But I also think for me, part of my spiritual practice and part of Hinduism is that you prepare for death from the moment of birth by remembering God. Because Mm -hmm. the goal is to remember God at the very end when you take your last breath. And that can give your soul much, much comfort and ease as it moves to the next life or if it moves to merge with the divine. So that's another thing that's important for me is to remember God at the end. Well, and to hear a doctor talking about and holding all of these pieces of life, I think is is so refreshing. And so thank you again for sharing with us today your knowledge, your wisdom, frankly, your beautiful words, because you speak just as beautifully as you write. Um, And where can people find you if they want to find you or they want to find your book? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the handle Sunita Puri MD. And you can find my book everywhere books are sold. So your local independents, even though they may not be open, are probably selling it online. And you can certainly find it in in Amazon as well. And thank you so much for having me, Amy. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you for being here. And I will have everything in the show notes for people as well. So thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.